We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovix. Joining me today is Michael Oliver from Momentum Structural Analysis. Thanks for joining me today again, Michael. Hi, Tom. Good to be back. So, you know, you and I have spoken many times before about this idea of a of a grinding bear market that you expected in the broad indices. So have we seen maybe just the beginning of this, maybe the first taste of it? Well, yeah, it's it has been arm wrestling, is the is the phrase we used, even when we issued our sell signal in January of last year and February of last year, NASDAQ one hundred and S P five hundred. They were like two months off the high, and we said, That's it. We're going into a bear market because certain things had broken that were not price-based, but momentum-based. But we said, don't expect it to crash. Mm-hmm. You know, this is going to be an arm wrestling match where the, you know, like the, maybe the first year or so, people are going to be debating about whether it's a bear market or not. Because every, you know, every other month or so, there's a counter-trend rally that makes you feel good. And you turn on your financial TV channels and they, they keep talking the word bottoming, or even with the question mark, the, the word bottoming comes up. And so that's where we are. Uh, we're in yet another rally right now over the last three or four weeks. And who knows, maybe it'll go for another couple of weeks. Um, <clears throat> if you go back and look at 2008, we came off a high in October 2007. And you dropped into late in the year. And as soon as we opened the new year, we issued a sell signal first days of January. So a couple of months off the high. Mm-hmm. And... You had a real sharp drop in January, not not a crash though, not a, not of that dimension. Mm-hmm. Then a rally into February, then back down into March, made a marginally marginally lower low, and then had a rally that lasted until May. And the May rally, I think it was the May rally. Yeah, went, went up and took out. If you looked at a price chart of the S and P, like week to week weekly mm-hmm. bar chart, you had a staircasing pattern of lower highs. Well, that May rally took out a prominent prior rally high. So not only did you have the arm wrestling decline, but you had one rally that went up and took out a prior high. So you could say, oh, a breakout. If you look at the price charts, it is. And after that breakout didn't really sustain, it, it took it about three or four weeks and it rolled over again. That's when the bear market within earnest began, where you started getting more volatile downside, bigger percentages. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think we're at that point now where it's the next new low in the S&P, next new price low after wherever this rally that we're in now peters out. It's that next new low that starts a, a, a tone that people recognize more so as a bear market. Mm-hmm. Now, and you also got to, when you look at the S&P, I know everybody does, it's the broad cricket. But look at the NASDAQ 100, which is really the market. Uh, it, it was the leader on the upside for a dozen years, and it's led the downside on a percentage basis. Michael, why, if I can interrupt you for one second, why, why is the NASDAQ the, the leader index, as you said, since, since about 2009? Well, its weightings uh, are also within the S&P. For example, you look at the top three or four weightings of stocks within the 100, NASDAQ 100. You know, it's Apple, Amazon. Uh, Microsoft, Google, et cetera. So heavily weighted, heavy percent of that index. And they're also heavily weighted within the S&P, not quite so heavily weighted, but still a a huge chunk of what the S&P is. But the NASDAQ 100 went up 16-fold from its 2009 low to its 2021 high, when the S&P went up 7-fold. So clearly, it was the leader. Now, on the downside... At the end of last year, for example, S&P was down 20%, NASDAQ down about 32%. So again, it's leading the new trend. And I think that is the index to really watch because it will remain the leader. You're not going to suddenly have it supplanted by a material sector or something. You know, you you might want to dream on about that, but it's going to be the leader. And if it continues to act the way it does, which is pathetic compared to the Mm -hmm. S&P, your market's pathetic. Now, look at NASDAQ right now. For example, Friday's close. You've had like a multi-week rally, just like the S&P. But if you go horizontally on a price chart, 
compare Friday's close to where it was in June, which tended to be a fairly important low for many indexes, S&P or its price charts, for example. That's where you are. Of course, the S&P is a nice handful of percentage points above the June low. So since June, we've been doing this stuff. S&P has actually gained versus where it was in June, whereas NASDAQ, all this effort has been spent rallying, 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 and it hasn't gone anywhere. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the clock is ticking. This this rally we're in right now either produces something dramatic, and I don't mean a back into a bull market, but a rally that impresses people, like take out a prior rally high. Now, for the S&P 500, it's trading around 4,000. That prior rally high was a month or two ago at 4,100. So go up another 2 3, 3%, take out that high, and let's see what's on the other side. Is it further buying or is it nothing? And if it goes up there and takes out that high, and again, we're not arguing it will or must, but it could. And if it does, that would be a great litmus test because if that breakout in price fritters away over the next week or two after breaking out, then it's a dud. The next rollover is likely to put you into a different type of downside, different type of tone. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> and we notice the opposite's going on in silver and gold. After getting beat up through a bottom of a price range that they had lived in from mid-2020 through late 2000, uh, through summer of 2022, mm-hmm. a two-year range, up and down, up and down. They burst through the bottom of that range. Now, gold had multiple lows around 1670. March 2021, August 2021, uh, June or July of 2022, you blew it out. And you did what? You dropped three whole percent and went to 1617. And now, several months later, where you're 1920s. <laughs> so there's an example of price blowing out something, in this case, downside. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter. It was a joke. And then suddenly dynamics the other way begin. Mm-hmm. Well, we're kind of looking for that possibility in the stock market where they go up and they take out some kind of obvious price high. And if that doesn't succeed and they roll over, then expect dynamics to renew on the downside. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and maybe the behavior of gold is inverse to that, which we think it is. Mm-hmm. to that type of behavior, in which case we could have speedier markets this year. Speedier, speedier meaning more volatile. More volatile, mm-hmm. get more done in a shorter period of time, either mm-hmm. whether upside or downside. So uh, how do you see the, the rate hikes affecting the situation going forward, Michael? Does the, does the full effect of how fast the, the Fed has hiked rates have yet to be felt by the markets and you know companies' yeah. earnings? I think so. I, I think that the looking for the quote data points that the Fed likes to look at, the old orthodox stuff they look at, mm-hmm. they're very much lag data points. And this kind this time they're really lagged. I mean, that unemployment number, you know, if you break it down and really look inside of it and see what's getting good unemployment, and what's not, it it's it's uh, I, I don't want to diminish it, but it's less important jobs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh it's not core economic jobs. Uh and and those type of things when they change, can change dramatically. In other words, if there's a catch-up involved, a lagged effect where, you know, they get whacked, but you don't feel it for a while, and then suddenly they feel it, uh, you could have a dramatic change in those numbers that is, again, lagged to the reality. And it's at that point, uh, and I think especially not just the data points, but when certain market arenas come under pressure that the Fed doesn't like, it's uncomfortable with, and that would be, of course, financial type stuff. Um, you know, Fed probably doesn't care whether this or that retailer goes under or this or that tech company. But if you start to talk about financial companies or Janet Yellen, for example, a month or two ago, issued a statement with great sincerity and concern. She said she was very concerned about the lack of liquidity in the U.S. government bond market. Mm-hmm. You get the biggest market, most important market in the world, arguably, at least for many, is now illiquid. Well, I mean, that's the worst word you can use in a market. You, 
you know, market can go down big or up big, but, but being illiquid is highly dangerous. Uh, remember back to mortgage-backed securities. You know, once the Fed came in to support them in late 2008, uh, suddenly that market got illiquid. Why? Because it was a monopoly buyer of the, of the asset. Nobody else was buying because they knew the prices they were paying weren't real or artificial created by the government. Mm-hmm. So the market became illiquid. And what happened? It collapsed. Uh, well, you know, if the U.S. government bond market, like, you know, the gilts in, in England recently, uh, you can't have that happen. And when that stuff starts to start to happen, even if it's not on a, quote, official data point, that's when the central banks quietly at first, admittedly, they're not going to come out pulling their hair out. OK, but behind the door, uh, they're going to be very concerned. Mm-hmm. And the secretary of Treasury, who's not on the Fed, is going to be telling them, listen, guys, you, you, you got to stop this. Uh, and the same type of action in other countries. Um, so that's something to watch. And right now, the bond market, U.S. government bond market, look at, for example, you know, 30-year bond or TLT, the popular ETF for long-dated treasuries. They're in a rally mode. Uh, they had a rally a couple of months ago that they're still below that rally high. They may go up and nip out that rally high. There's a lot of people thinking, oh boy, rates have peaked. We don't think so. We think rates have the decline in price in T-bonds that we saw a year ago even blew out the momentum trend structure and integrity of the uptrend of the prior decades. So you don't just go down and break it once and that's it. You break it, then you have a rally that's meaningless, then you have another leg. So we're going to have further decline in bonds, rise in yields. Mm-hmm. But right now we're in a pause where we're getting an upside correction where there's there's hope again, you know, that, oh boy, you know, Maybe we've seen the worst. Mm-hmm. Uh, I doubt it. But that's a market to watch, the T-bond market, because uh, as it goes, and especially if that term illiquidity is used again by Yellen, uh, that's that's the key to watch. So, Michael, when we think about, let's say, the dynamics of the Fed needing to support the bond market, what does that in turn do to the dollar? Is that more of a confidence game or is it is it a... A very linear relationship. Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the funds have to come from somewhere to support the dollar. And if the foreign buyers, which used to be there, are divesting themselves consistently of their debond holdings, mm-hmm. then if there's another wave of needed demand for U.S. bonds to support them, to keep the long end of the market from going higher in yield, remember, the long end is somewhat beyond the control of the Fed. You know, they control Fed funds rates, stuff like that. But the longer end of the market is is a is a, is a dragon that's in it under its own control, and so if the Fed has to throw capital behind that thing, they're going to have to. It's going to have to be fabricated. So you know uh, they're going to have to make money, create money to do that. Mm-hmm. And so underlying inflation is going to return, and I think that's what gold sort of knows, and that's why gold, for example, in the first year of the asset downturn. And again, we argue it's the biggest asset bubble in U.S. history. It makes 1929 bull market peak look like a pipsqueak on a per ratio basis. You know, it was like a tripling or a quadrupling of the, of the stock market back then. We had a sevenfold and a sixteenfold. Okay, or the dot com bubble doesn't compare mm-hmm. to the bubble of, of that we just saw, or the 2007 real estate bubble high. They don't compare to what we just saw. So as that bubble unravels, the consequences are. are Many and, and, and diverse, and some of them will be dangerous, dangerous for the central bank's point of view, mm-hmm. in which case the, the Fed's going to have to lose credibility. And already, to some extent, they are. A lot of, a lot of Fed supporters who were initially for the raising rates, now suddenly uh, it's gone too far. Uh-oh, Fed's, Fed's, it's over. The Fed's already done the damage. This is going to be hell. Uh, Nuriel Rubini is an example, uh, who's a, a generally a pro-fund, a pro-Fed economist. Now he's saying this is going to be the biggest disaster in history uh, with real world industry type consequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elarian also thinks this is, uh-oh, it's gone beyond the beyond. This is going to be terrible. Uh, and that's what we've been thinking all along, too, mm-hmm. is the ultimate outcome of this is going to be real world events, not just market events. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how do you how do you see the path forward 
for the Fed here? Are they going to be able to make a couple more, you know, 50 point rate hikes as they as they signaled? <laughs> I, I hope they do. Yeah. I mean, they pricked a balloon already. And once you prick a bubble and it breaks, and by our definition, our momentum, long-term momentum measurements, it's broken. Mm-hmm. Once they break, they unwind. And the central banks invariably, if you go back and look at the bear market after the dot-com top, or you look at the bear market after the 2007 peak, yeah, the Fed came in and tried to stop it at some point. Mm-hmm. Not at the tail end, but you know, halfway through the bear, they tried to come in and, and defend and defend. It didn't work. Or the market ultimately expunged itself of prior errors and probably overshot itself on the downside. You know, when you go excessive one way, quite often you go excessive the other. Mm -hmm. That's the way markets are. Uh, And so we think we're in the early phase of the downturn. And so far, it's not alarming to the Fed. And they feel, you know, I'll do another half. And, you know, they'll they'll slow up. There's no question. But uh, it doesn't matter. They've already gone so far. And if they add another half percent, another half percent, it's just going to make it worse. Though, really, they've done their job. Um, And now they're going to have to revert. And I don't know how they're intellectually going to do it without losing credibility. Where We went one way for like 10 years. Money was free. Mm -hmm. And then we went another way. And now we're going to have to go another way. Pretty soon, people are going to look back and say, geez, these guys don't know what they're doing. You know, do we really need this institution? Mm-hmm. Or would maybe a gold backed currency be more stable? You know, all these questions are going to start to come up. My bet is you won't have a Fed in, in several years. Interesting. There'll be enough public pressure and doubt and skepticism where it just won't have enough credibility to persist. Remember, it's only been around 100 years. Mm-hmm. It's not like some eternal thing. So, you know, when we when we think about how really how they're how they're going to react, obviously using the only the only two tools that they have by quantitative easing and slashing rates again, do you think that they're going to be so far behind the eight ball, so so reactionary instead of proactive this time that they're not going to be able to really have the effect that they they need and want to once they step back in? Well, if they create another river flow of, of liquidity, mm-hmm. which they will, and I say they, I include the Bank of Japan, EU, and so forth, uh, primarily the developed countries, not so much China uh, or a lot of emerging markets. They didn't do what we did. Mm-hmm. China didn't have a bubble. So all the talk about a bear market in China, yeah, uh, it's halted just above a number that would have put us into a, a deep bear camp. It halted a, a couple of months ago at a level where we said, don't close the month below there, and they didn't, and they've rallied since. Mm-hmm. But even if it does enter a coincident bear market with the U.S., it's going to be a slow and sluggish bear market. It's not going to be a bubble breaking. It's just going to be a grind. And percent-wise, it's not going to be anything like ours. Why? Because they didn't have a bubble in the mm-hmm. first place. And that's even true with Europe. If you look back at uh, where the European indexes are now versus 2015, huh. There's, there's not been a bubble. Yeah, they've been in sync with the U.S. on the upside, but they didn't have a bubble. We're the ones with the big bubble. So we're the ones that are going to pay the dues because we're the ones with the most built-in errors over the past dozen years. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll, we'll be the standout. Um, and they won't be able to reverse it. What they'll do is when they create a new river flow of liquidity, investors and asset managers will utilize that river flow, but they're not going to put it where the Fed wants it to go. This is going to be more like late 70s, you know, where after the stock market had its collapse into 2000, uh, 1974, after a bull market peak, it rallied and then it went sideways to 1982. It was a total wasteland. Now, that, that bear market in the mid-70s was not a, a bubble-breaking. It did not achieve what we did, so it wasn't as bad. But still, asset managers and investors, simply stocks weren't, weren't in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember being a broker back then uh, in, the, in the brokerage side of the business. This is you're talking, you know, late 70s, early 80s. Phones weren't ringing for the stockbrokers. In fact, they were out to lunch all the time. I was a commodity broker. I was doing the greatest amount of business, and I'm not a great salesman. And it's because people were were moving money into harder assets. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that's what's going to happen this time. So if they start pumping money again to save uh, muni bonds or to save high yield corporate debt, or to save the U.S. Treasury market, they're going to create the liquidity, but it's not going to go precisely where they want because investors are just tired of that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, 2022 was a great lesson. You know, you, you, down on the year, 20% S&P, down on the year, 30-something percent bonds, down on the year, 30-something percent NASDAQ, down on the year, muni bonds, down on the year. All the paper assets were down double digits. And gold closed unchanged. It was a relatively safe place to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the year, it closed unchanged, silver up 3%, and the commodity index was up 13%, despite being in a sell-off. So all their attempt to slow the river flow didn't have the effect they wanted. It went elsewhere. And the same is true when they increased the river flow. It's coming back into the markets, but I, I almost guarantee it's going into gold. Mm-hmm. So, Michael, when we think about, let's say, as you mentioned, the the commodity index being up 13% over last year, even, even being down from its highs, we've seen this this spike in inflation, do you think that's the precursor for much higher inflation as we as we see the costs of these raw products really play into everything? Yeah, if you define inflation as like commodity-based type stuff, CPI type stuff, mm-hmm. we define inflation via monetary factors. Mm-hmm. And inflation's been ongoing since 1959. Every 10 years, the money supply almost doubles. Okay. Now, in the last decade, it's gone parabolic. Uh, That will return because the central bank will have to do that. Mm -hmm. This time it shows up in the things they call inflationary, like commodity-based assets, the price Mm -hmm. of eggs, you know, uh, gasoline and so forth. Uh, Too many people right now, I think, are focused on what had been the leadership in the first bull wave of commodities. Now, that bull wave began by our metrics in October of 2020. We put out a report called Commodity Explosion Coming. We didn't say commodity upturn. We said commodity explosion. The Bloomberg Commodity Index then was just above 70. Its low had been in the 50s. It shot up to 140 by early 2022. What happened in early 2022? Russia invaded Ukraine. But... 90% of the entire commodity move, including oil, had already occurred before that invasion ever happened. Mm-hmm. So you can't blame it on, on Putin and, you know, any strangling effect that might have had on energy movement or, or grains. You know, that had already occurred in the pricing of grains and oil before Putin even stepped across the border. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a nice excuse for governments to use. The real cause was the monetary expansion. It didn't go where they wanted it to go. Stock market, it went into commodities, finally, or underpriced commodities. Now we've had a correction, an arm wrestling correction. Oil's now at 70 to 80 bucks. It had a spike up to 130. Natural gas got up to 10, it's now under four. But you look back at the last four or five years of price action, those prices, 70 to 80 oil, under $4 natural gas, Natural gas is only barely back below the highs of the prior half dozen years. So it's still at a high level compared to three or four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. Yes, it had a sharp pullback. We suspect it's not going to go much lower. But energy led the way in the first commodity leg. We think the second commodity leg is not likely to be led by them, that they will participate and, and, and be to the upside. But on a percent basis, we think it's highly more likely to be the food category. Grains, sugar, for example, uh, which is, you know, well, the price of gasoline at the pump is dropped and people are smiling. The price of eggs, you know, has gone up. The price of ground beef, cattle's in stratospheric highs right now. So Almost. Like, yeah. yeah, it's new highs for the last years. Mm-hmm. Uh, sugar, new highs for the last five, six years. You know, nobody's talking about that. They're talking about, oh, gasoline's come down. Yeah, great. Meanwhile, that which you put on your, your table is 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 compensating for it. So, you know, it's this or that, but you still got the rising price level, which affects the average family. Uh, and also we have, you know, we have the consumer credit. It's gone through the roof. And out of dependency for the need of, of cash flow, they didn't have the savings, they had to borrow it. Mm-hmm. And now suddenly you're at a point now where things aren't getting better really for them. 
So you're going to have delinquencies rise. You're going to have car repossessions. Oh, man, you're going to have all kinds of things that the Fed will then pay attention to. Recessionary type events. Mm-hmm. A, a hint of that, Wells Fargo. They're out of, uh, uh, best I know, they're totally out of the mortgage market. They announced that like a week ago. Gone. Well, what are they afraid of? Why did they make that strategic decision? What are they anticipating? I suspect they're dead on. Mm-hmm. Dead on right. Yeah, it seems like, you know, as you're saying, these consumer staples like food are are following many things that, again, we talked about before, you know, lack of fertilizer, for example, and how that's going to affect beef prices, grain prices going forward. And these trends don't seem, you know, they're not, they're not necessarily a mystery, right? No, they're not. And and it's, it's not just because of specifics to a market. For instance, when we said commodity explosion in October 2020, um, it was every commodity. You could have thrown a dart, you know, cow manure up, you know, <laughs> uh, apples up, everything up. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not because you had a specific that was, you know, you didn't have a wheat route that caused wheat to go up, you know, or, or anything of that sort. It was just everything went up at once. And even when they went to 140 on the Bloomberg, I don't know, it was a brief spike, by the way, and it then settled back around 100 area, give or take. Um you didn't have a specific event that you could say did that. And even the Russia excuse was at the absolute tail end of that entire move. So I don't know that you need a specific excuse. I think it's more of a assets are moving from a risk area, a risk reward area that they now perceive to be less rewarding, more risky stocks, other paper assets, government bonds of all levels into an asset category that still, when you look back at price levels of where the Bloomberg was in 2008, for example, we got up to 140. Heck, it was up in the mid-200s back then. Mm-hmm. So even though, yes, we have a rapid change year over year, which is the way they like to measure this stuff. Oh, biggest inflation we ever had. The price levels aren't, though. We're not back to the price levels of commodities in 2008, for example. We're only halfway back. So when you look at it, not a year to year net change, which is a convenient way to say, Oh, it's been pulling back here because this month last year, it was, you know, et cetera. Uh, it's, it's the general price level is still low for commodities historically. And so there's plenty of room to run for, we think there's a second leg coming. And that's really going to mess up the Fed's integrity, their sense of being of value. Because if all they've done is break stocks and commodities get into a new wave. And so all this recent cheering about the pullback in some commodity prices ends, and suddenly there's a new wave up in commodities. Then people are going to say, hey, listen, this policy move by the Fed, it didn't have the effect at all that they told us it would have. Mm-hmm. So they're going to lose more credibility as, as these events unfold, and perhaps to the point where we don't have a Fed. Uh, we have instead... This country, that country, suddenly a trend sets in motion where perhaps there's gold-backed currencies again. Well, unfortunately, Michael, I don't think you know your average American is paying attention to what the Fed is doing, and they also have a, a very short memory. So I don't know that they're going to be able to kind of link those two things to to really have a mainstream view that the the Fed is to blame for for these bubbles and the effects that they've had. But enough economists and uh, academicians will. And I don't think it needs public consensus to make these kind of changes. Mm-hmm. That if you get enough influential academicians and economists and even politicians to suddenly make the decision, hey, you know, this just hasn't been working. We need something else. Mm-hmm. And somebody points out to them, hey, you remember when? Okay. Uh, then perhaps we go back that way. Uh, we go back toward some more less fiat type currency. And it, right. it, it may not begin here. In fact, it probably won't. It'll probably begin elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's the potential for the demise of the dollar also. In that, what, what does the world need a reserve currency for? 
I mean, you know, we're not like 200 years ago when the, the, the pound sterling was it, you know, or whatever. The world can have two or three viable internationally tradable, recognizable money units, mm-hmm. some of which might even be backed by gold. You know, who knows? Maybe the Chinese yuan will be at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dollar is going to lose its 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 dominance. But whether it gets kicked totally off the list, I, that's a different issue. But being the sole reserve currency, I think, is going to end. And I think we're in the process technically now of the dollar. We got bearish. Dollar index shot up to 100, almost 115 mm-hmm. several months back. It took out a range. It was a price range, a very dull, narrow price range that had prevailed from 2015 through 2020, early 2022. So seven years wide. And the upper end of that range had been 103 and a half area, 103 and a half area, twice. It punched through there in March of last year and ran up to almost 115. And everybody said, oh boy, the dollar's dominant. It's gonna, you know, it's gonna be the currency for et cetera. Everybody got on board. Well, when it dropped back down under 111, so three or four points off its high. We turned major bearish again because we, we momentum broke some big stuff. Price didn't at that point. Momentum did. Mm-hmm. And we said, you're going down to 103 again quickly. Well, that's where we went. We're down to 103 and a half. And for four weeks late last year, pounded on the 103 and a half. Why? Because price chart guys are looking at their price charts and they see these old two highs of the range that had prevailed. A very narrow percent range, by the way. One of the least volatile ranges in dollar history. That seven years almost was asleep while gold doubled during that time. Uh, they bought it on top of that range. And now suddenly we've traded under 102. So now they realize, oops, that upside price breakout was a fake out because the old highs didn't hold the support. Well, flip it over. That's exactly what gold did. Except it wasn't a seven year wide range. It was a two year wide range. It's 1670. Broke through it and said, eh, eh, right back above it. And what do we do? We gush back to the highs. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't shock me that the dollar, which is now under very sharp pressure, uh, suffers a lot more in the next several months. Mm-hmm. It's way down below, down maybe even down under 100. You know, and then people start to say, hmm, what's going on here? And what's going on is, is partly an issue of the central banks where the perception was, oh, the, the, the BOJ is going to stay free money forever. No, they suddenly started to join the game even if slightly, the tightening game. And the EU is trying to compete with us to some extent in the tightening game. So suddenly the Fed's tightening doesn't look so isolated. And so that was part of the reason the dollar going up is, oh, they're giving us higher rates compared to these other guys. Well, all of a sudden that, that perception is shifting and the, the, the support of the dollar is evaporating. Uh, and this could open up to a world of multiple reserve currencies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of on that on that idea of how antiquated that idea is, Michael, is you know, the the other the other part of the SWIFT system still being the the only real way to to transfer large amounts of money around the world and how again antiquated that system really seems to be, considering we have such more efficient alternatives now. There's just so many factors that point towards the need for change in that system. Yeah, and I think the market reality, the, the, the trading market, the dollar index drop. By the way, dollar index is 57% the euro. Mm-hmm. And when you add the yen, it's like over 60%. It's just those two currencies. So really, the dollar index is the euro upside down. Mm-hmm. So it's really not much of an index, you know, <laughs> when one one unit is 57% of it. But, but anyway, uh, yeah, I think that the that the drop in the dollar itself in the in the marketplace is causing the intellectual rethinking as well. Mm-hmm. You know, you get smacked in the face by market reality and you start to think, well, what's really going on here? And people think broader and they, they take into account the type of stuff we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. So when investors are talking about and looking at commodities, why do you think that too many of them are focused too heavily on energy? Well, it's because, you know, a lot of people, when they find a leader in a given area, they they continue to, you know, put dominance on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, it's, 
I think that that's part of the reason that they were fixated by the extreme strength in energy. Plus, energy affected people more than any other thing in the last warm-up. It, it hurt the average guy going to the pump. Okay. It really hurt him bad. Uh, but if it if it now shifts to food, which you know arguably is, is as important, if not more important, than fuel, and balances out the pullback in fuel prices, it's not going to much matter to the average guy in the street. He's still getting killed. Mm-hmm. And God forbid that, that oil starts to regain again, which you probably will. And so natural gas as well, even though not as much as they were. I don't think they'll be leaders the second time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could rotate in the second phase of this bull trend. Uh, we think it'll be more likely food type stuff. And mm-hmm. well, even copper, base metals. The copper suddenly come back to life big time. Um, so and sort of a lot of the base metal miners have come back to life as well. Um so that has nothing to do with directly with the Ukraine situation. Um, so once they run out of excuses and the public sees that this policy to subdue inflation as narrowly defined as commodity inflation isn't working, then skepticism about the Fed rises, but also concern about who's in charge. And if people don't have a sense that somebody's in charge, you know, they start pulling their hair out. And so panic can ensue more quickly that way when you don't have a sense that there's a papa out there. The papa ain't no good. You know, he's, he's not doing his job. He can't do his job. The, this reality is beyond his kin. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when people start to panic. But, you know, people still believe you can't fight the Fed. And that's why a lot of people have been trying to sell gold, thinking that, well, you know, you, you can't fight the Fed. And if they want to take inflation down, you better sell gold. And, you know, it, on net on balance is t- 2022 went along, gold went up about 10, 12 percent, down about 10, 12 and came back close unchanged. And now it's up 100 bucks on a year versus 2021 and versus 2022. So something isn't working. And when that happens, people start to panic because their sense of orientation is wrong. And when they don't have a sense of, you know, where is reality? That's when the words like panic start to in, in, come into play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you, as you're saying, there's when people don't feel that there's a, a Papa in control, that there there's somebody out there that is going to take care of me. Then mm-hmm. as you mm-hmm. say, I think, I think that panic might start to set in. So Michael, when we're talking about or analyzing the difference between gold and silver's behavior right now, why are we seeing, you know, Gold seem to seemingly have having more strength than silver at this time. Well, actually, if it doesn't, uh, it seems that way sometimes. Like, for instance, mm-hmm. when we began the new year, silver dropped three mm-hmm. percent back to from where to close 2022. Gold didn't even trade down on the year. So there mm-hmm. briefly, silver had a three percent drop. This is a couple of weeks ago in the, in the third uh, third trading day of the new year, January 5th. Silver had a drop. 3% down on the year. Gold wasn't even down on the year. So there was a point where you, what you just said was true. Yeah. But since the close of September, we measure silver's action, price action versus gold, and we create a spread. We plot it. So silver price is what percent of the price of gold? And recently, in, in the last year or two, its lows have been down close to 1% of the price of gold. You know, Took 100 ounces of silver to buy one ounce of gold. Uh, if you go back 50 years and look at that spread, you'll see big swings up and down. And we were definitely at a low level. So during that pullback that silver had in 2021, 2022, the spread came back down to what we would call historically low spread levels in relation to gold. But at this close of September, that spread broke out. Mm-hmm by our momentum metrics. And sure enough, ever since then, month to month to month, silver's gained versus gold dramatically. But you look at it, gold made a low in the low 1600, it's gained $300 right now. Okay, we're at 1900. Silver made a low just above 17, it's trading almost 25. Percent is a lot bigger gain Mm -hmm. for silver. So what's interesting about that spread is generally speaking, and in fact, almost all the time, when that spread turns into positive trend for silver, it usually converts to also net price positive trend for both metals with silver leading. When that spread turns negative for silver, as it did in early 2021, 
Sure enough, what happened was general pressure hit the net price of gold and silver during that period of time with silver underperforming. But again, when you go back 50 years and look at that spread, it was one time it was at six and a half percent. We'll lift that one off the table. That was an exception. That was in 1980. Since then, silver has reached, that spread has reached near two and a half to three percent, about four or five times. So it's not like an irregularity for that spread to go up to two percent, two and a half or even three percent of the price of gold. Okay. If gold were just two thousand bucks an ounce and stayed there and silver were two percent of that, silver would be $40. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you go back and look at gold over that 50-year period, starting in 1970, before gold was even trading here, cash market, you had a six-fold bull move between 1970-1975 and 1975 peak when gold was legalized at 200 bucks, and you had a bear trend. From the 1976 low to 1980, you had an eight-fold bull move in gold, eight-fold increase in price. From 2000, the year 2000, gold was 250 bucks an ounce. During 2000 and 2011, you had an eight-fold move in the price of gold, up to $1,920. So far, this bull market, which is ongoing, started from 1050 So far, we've only had a doubling. Mm-hmm. If gold were merely to do what it's done three times before in the prior 40-plus years and have another eight-fold move, it'd be 8000 bucks an ounce. Mm-hmm. And, well, and that we, was – sorry, that was – you recently charted that with your gold monthly ratio chart, right? Yeah. And if, if, if silver were 2% of, of 8000 mm-hmm. it'd be $160 an ounce. Mm-hmm. So if gold is in this bull trend, which we argue was only mildly interrupted with that brief break this summer that took out the bottom end of that quiet range, very briefly, in fact, like four weeks and then right back up, uh, bear trap. And isn't, in fact, still ongoing in the bull market that began from the 2015 price low at 1050 And gold goes up another eightfold. Frankly, we have an environment out there that we've already been talking about that could create something far more dramatic. We know that. Mm-hmm. But even if it just did what it's done three prior times, almost routinely, and went eightfold, and silver did something routine, like go up to 2.5% of the price of gold on a ratio basis, something it's done four or five times, routinely, then you're talking a couple hundred dollars silver. Mm-hmm. Silver's in the 20s. A couple hundred dollars? You do the math. Okay, so we're focused on silver right now because we think, one, the gold and silver upturn has resumed. We think it had a corrective, protracted, corrective process, not a bear market between 2020-2022 low. And if we have just the normality of upside that we've had so many times before, in both in the price of gold, the gain, the multiple gains, and in the silver-gold ratio, it's not outlandish whatsoever to argue $200 silver. Mm -hmm. It's fully within the cards. And especially when you look and flip over all the other things that are going on out there and realize what the consequences could be to this. Mm -hmm. So... We're most bullish on the monetary metals as far as a category this year, not commodities. Commodities will lag what gold and silver do. And they're not always in sync, by the way. Mm-hmm. You know, people think, well, if commodities go up, that's inflation that helps gold. No, it has nothing to do with it. Gold looks at monetary policy. Commodities were sideways 2015 through 2020. In fact, it was a slight decline. They were depressed into the hole. Gold doubled. And then when commodities exploded in late 2020, gold had already doubled and peaked. It was in a downside corrective mode when commodities exploded. So don't necessarily try to link the two. But anyway, if we get a second commodity boom, it will merely be on the tails of gold and silver leadership. Mm-hmm. And I think within that leadership group, then which is now very narrow, gold and silver and their miners, commodities will be a laggard and silver will be the outperformer. And one of the virtues, one of the wins at the back of gold and silver this time around is they don't have an alternative competition. There have been times before when T-bonds were an alternative. So if you didn't like stocks, you could have bought bonds or bought gold and saved your butt. 
This time, if you bought bonds, you got kicked really bad, even worse than stocks. Mm-hmm. And there'll be more of that. So gold is now the isolated alternative. So it's like a wet bar of soap that so many hands are going to grab with few alternatives out there. Yeah. And that's why our focus in 2023 is extremely narrow on gold and silver with the emphasis on silver. So, Michael, in your in that idea that there's no alternative, one could argue that Bitcoin in in the past, Bitcoin and cryptos in general have taken some of the liquidity from gold as a mm-hmm. a really you know shiny asset that a lot of people chased. Do you think that in that idea that Bitcoin has yet to prove its reliability as that type of asset, mm-hmm. as a as a real alternative to gold for most people, not just not just people that are trying to chase that momentum. I think ultimately it will be helped by gold, and it, it's we do Bitcoin reports as well every couple of weeks. We update, we just updated in this weekend report, and Bitcoin has crossed through some long term and short and intermediate term buy signal levels for us, mm-hmm. which indicates to us yes. You can now start thinking positively about Bitcoin. That doesn't say what the dynamics are going to be. It just says we think that probably it's been beat to the point of possibly the low is in place and that the bias now is positive zigzag rather than negative zigzag. Mm -hmm. We turned bearish on Bitcoin more than a year ago when it was coming down through the mid 40,000s, especially in the mid 30,000s. We thought it would go back to 15,000 or so. Well, it got even lower than that. That's a wipe on a percent basis. Go from 70,000 down under 15 is a wipeout. I mean, you might as well go to zero, you know. <laughs> uh, and we suspected that would happen. Also, back talking about spreads again and the relationship between Bitcoin and gold. There was a period from about 2018 through 2021 where if you bought Bitcoin and sold gold, you made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin beat the pants off of gold in terms of a place to be. Far greater percent gain. But then uh, more than a year ago, that spread broke down. And it happened to break down coincident with our declaring of the top in Bitcoin. So we declared that the top was in place for Bitcoin and a major bear going to happen. But also the spread versus gold broke down. And sure enough, if you bought gold then and sold Bitcoin, you made a ton of money. Mm-hmm. Okay, Mostly being short Bitcoin, somewhat being long gold. Um, gold still favors Bitcoin. So even if Bitcoin is turning up now, it's lagging gold. It will continue to. I don't think it will be the best place to be in the next couple of years. But I do think it will be a, a secondary alternative. And I'm not I, I can't talk about all the cryptos. I mean, there's so many beyond my ken. Mm-hmm. Um, but we look at Bitcoin and I think, yes, you're right. that It could prove to be an alternative or a growing alternative, but it's going to take it a while to regain confidence. And it's technicals while they've shifted to positive, they don't look dynamic. I mean, it doesn't look like you're going to explode now. Mm -hmm. Go back to 50,000 Bitcoin or something real quick. Uh, It looks like you're going to have to arm wrestle your way higher. But it does look like a shift may have occurred. And I do think, yes, that could be an alternative over the next year or two. Certainly to those other asset categories, Mm -hmm. stocks and bonds, uh, but a far lesser alternative than gold and silver. Michael, one of the last things I wanted to touch on with you here is is uranium. Of course, we've seen quite a change with all of the market dynamics that have come into uranium, you know, the supply deficit, all of these things. So how are you guys, you know, even though you're somewhat removed from the, let's say, the day-to-day market issues of uranium, how do you see the uranium price going forward? No predictions except to say we turned bullish on uranium literally a few dollars off its low several years ago. Mm-hmm. It was well under 20. I think, it was, I think it was under 20, if I'm not mistaken. Um, we had a couple of buy points and, and it exploded since, along with most energy markets. Mm-hmm. Natural gas exploded, crude oil exploded. So they all, all exploded. And uranium's been holding better than oil and natural gas in terms of the pullback. It's not been as, as sharp. It's a highly, you, it's almost, you can't trade the futures. They exist, but, you know, the daily volume is sometimes single, you know, that many contracts or something. So it's a nominal contract. And we try to keep up with the data uh, on spot price of uranium 308. 
futures on the Chicago Merck, uh, NYMEX, and then on, shown on the Chicago Merck. So we do keep up with it. And every month we update it in our monthly commodity report. And so it, it, while it looks positive long-term, just like oil, oil does, looks like energy category in general does, it's been holding up well. Mm-hmm. So I think, yes, it, uh, it has long-term further to go, just like energy itself. Uh, but the problem is the, the real thing to look at there, which we, we do as well, is look at the uranium stocks more than uranium itself. And they've tended to behave somewhat differently than uranium, better than uranium. They were lagged on the breakout to the upside. They lagged uranium. But then they caught up and, and they're behaving better. Uh, to some extent, this is also true with natural gas stocks. Well, natural gas has been pummeled recently. The natural gas stocks have not been pummeled as much. Mm-hmm. So if you're, you're watching uranium, watch it. But it's remember, it's a highly illiquid futures market. It's almost nominal. And uh, to focus more on, on the ETF that covers a lot of uranium stocks would probably be a better way to keep track of that energy source. Mm-hmm. Excellent, Michael. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to touch on before maybe we wrap up today? Uh, yeah, I think 2023 is going to be a, you know, a lot of bull trends, you know, they're incremental. They sort of stay incremental maybe to the last few months and then they go ballistic type of mm-hmm. thing. Uh, it's like the stock market went up for 12 years, fairly incremental, and it suddenly hit a blow off in 2021. You know, uh, I tend to think 2023 is going to be a very violent year. Uh, downside for some markets, upside for others. Where while 2022 may have been incremental, I don't think we're going to stay incremental during 2023 and 2024. And suddenly in 2025, you're going to get this explosion or, or collapse. I think you could get more volatility this year than most people expect. Mm-hmm. whether upside or downside. Uh, I think the events that are happening are going to coalesce like very quickly. There was a Monty Python movie I always chuckle about where uh, they, it was a medieval movie. There's a guard standing outside of a castle with his spear and he's looking out over the horizon and he sees two guys on horses with the lances, but they're way out there, you know, mm-hmm. And you look at him and he's sort of awesome back and forth very calmly. And then you see the riders, they're coming closer, but it's still way, way away. And all of a sudden, two seconds later, they're on him and they spear him. You know, like all of a sudden they go from here to here, boom. Yep. Like, okay, that's what I think 2023 is going to look like. Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden, my God, the now, this year, uh, I think 2023 is going to be the chaos year, not the end. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it just seems that events and and markets are are really accelerating and you know if if nothing else 2023 and 24 at very least are going to be very interesting and exciting and i'm sure it'll give give us lots more to to talk about in the future here right michael i think so <laughs> excellent of course all of your your reports and your unique momentum analysis is available at olivermsa.com and your Twitter handle is at Oliver underscore MSA as well, right? That's right. And thanks a lot, Tom. Wonderful. Thank you, Michael. Sure. Appreciate it. Again. Bye-bye. Take care. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.